ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Both of Damien Callanan's parents kept diaries, but not at the same time. Damien's mum, Kathleen, kept hers as a younger woman, while his dad, Adrian, kept his when he retired. Adrian and Kathleen met each other at the football in Melbourne in 1946. Kathleen had several suitors lining up to date her, but she fell for the dashing flyboy Adrian, who'd just returned from the war, and they remained deeply in love throughout their long marriage. They had five kids together, and they were pillars of their Catholic community in the suburb of Watsonia. For Damien Callanan, the discovery of both his parents' diaries after their deaths opened a door into the beginning and the end of their marriage when a ridiculous, terrible accident brought their three decades together to a close. Damien Callanan is now a writer and a comedian. Hello, Damien. Hello, Richard. Tell me about finding the box of diaries as you did after your dad's death. Well, when Dad passed away, he was in a nursing home, so his possessions had dwindled down to, you know, his bathrobe and... um well, basically a sponsorship for Gazman was, was what was hanging in his his wardrobe <laughs> through the through the pastel toning, tonings to the autumnal tonings. But um, there was one box of diaries, which we knew the existence of because they were Dad's retirement diaries is what we called them. Um, after he retired, he was a very successful school headmaster and he had decided to write his memoirs. And I think almost as part of the process of that, he started documenting his life. It was was interesting that he chose the least interesting phase of his life to document. (laughs) So for that reason, none of us had really bothered to kind of stumble through or even ask to read them. We just knew of their existence. But then for some unknown reasons, on the night of Dad's funeral, when the siblings were all back at my elder sister's place and it was just the bare bare bones of the immediate family, the box got dragged out and I just started going through it and we found a, we found kind of like notes Mum had written to help Dad write his memoirs. He, he never finished his memoirs. He decided to document his life from them at the beginning of their relationship and uh, he got as far as my birth and ran out of steam <laughs> on, the, on the youngest, which merely confirmed suspicions that um, I was I was adopted and you just didn't want to <laughs> deal with that tricky terrain, put it in writing. So anyway, within the box, I found some much smaller diaries and there was one that's roughly 10 centimetres by 7 centimetres and I opened it up and I knew straight away that it was in Mum's hand. She had a beautiful cursive script and I kind of flicked through the pages and went, this is, this is from 1946. And none of us knew that she'd ever diarised. And I soon realised that it was, like, written at the time. Like, it was... And Mum was... Mum turned 19 in June of 1946, so it begins as this 18-year-old girl straight off to World War II. And it's... It was incredible. It was not only a wonderful social document of... As she kind of articulated the details of the Victory Day parade in... Um, I think it was in June 1946, after VE... Or the year anniversary of VE Day and her kind of reading to stricken soldiers out of Heidelberg Military Hospital. But we also realised it was chronicling her meeting Dad. And it was just extraordinary. I started reading it out to my family and this 19-year-old version, you could still hear Mum in there, but this 19-year-old version of it just came to life and it was, it was a gift. 
this woman that you encountered in the diary, she's much younger than the mum you remember. Yes. Is there some sort of shock in that, seeing your mum come to life with such immediacy in her handwriting on the page as a teenager? Look, absolutely. You know, I was the youngest too, so mum was 38 when I, I was born, so my first memories of her are in her 40s. There were elements of it that triggered stories and thoughts. Mum, mum was a very attractive and vivacious woman. They talked a lot about the, you know, the dances and, but anyone I think when they're recalling their past tends to fall on a series of stories to encapsulate their courtship. So they become repetitive in a sense. But this was delicious new material that I don't even know if. Mum recalled some of the things that she she was writing about. Uh, And, yes, the idea that she was courting, uh, not just Dad, she had four or five suitors on the go and there was one one fellow who just wouldn't take no for an answer who was hanging around like a blowfly. How does she describe these guys anyway? Mum was a very diplomatic person, so she rarely wrote anything nasty. She really said anything nasty, but there's, there's one exchange where she ends up being asked to go to a ball with this fellow, Jack, and had a group of friends and she blames her other friends for encouraging it. And she, you know, she's like, I could have wrung Jack Ferguson's <laughs> neck that I was put in this position. But most beautifully, this other fellow, Ron Rogan. So the, Jack, I think, was quite benign. He used to just sit on the back doorstep like a puppy dog panting, waiting for, you know, mum to appear. Um, whereas this other fellow, Ron Rogan, was was a little more forward. <laughs> At one point she describes him as being the, a member of the Wandering Hands Society. <laughs> <laughs> so then how did your dad, the glamorous flyboy from the RAAF, swoop down into her life, David? Well, Mum had been uh, ensconced in a social group. And in those days she called them crowds, which was lovely. You know, went to the movies with the Mentone crowd. And she had befriended a group who she referred to in the diary as the East Boys. And the East Boys were all members of the East Brunswick CYMS, Sporting and Social Club. And in the diary she describes going down to CYMS, one of her best friends, Pat Cullen. And it's a really long entry. It's the first time she goes into any detail. You can almost sense it coming. You know, she says that the other East Boys brought... Adrian over and she said, we haven't met him previously because he's been away with the RAAF and there's almost a sense of pride or intrigue. And then she goes into quite a lot of detail about the rest of that day, which ordinarily um, she might have swept over. Hindsight tells you she was smitten. There's a change in tone when she meets him. And these other guys are still sniffing around too. That's the delicious part of it. Is, but, but, you know, there's one night where she describes dad and you know and their first kiss and it's just delightful but then the next day she bloody goes to the movies with ron oh, rogan, ron again. rogan <laughs> again is it I don't, I don't know what i think about that ron rogan no no but but your dad prevailed obviously dad, dad yeah dad did prevail your dad was an amateur actor did your mum get to see him perform <laughs> yes she did and this was the story that was most retold of their courtship dad was at melbourne university at the time studying a Bachelor of Commerce and did his kind of education year out of that. And he was he was often involved in theatre companies. Even after his teaching career became his main focus, he would, in fact, he began the Backers Marsh Amateur Theatre Company himself, which was where his first teaching post was. And um, he was cast in a play called He Was Born Gay. 
by Emmeline Williams. And did one of Dad's favourite stories was, you know, my first date was taking him up to see me and he was born gay and always <laughs> so, hitting gay very hard. Gay in that sense, of course, I, mean, I, mean, I suppose I meant happy and blithe and uh, delightful, yes. right? So. But, of course, the, you know, in 1940s, gay had different connotations. There are yes. many movie titles with the word gay in it. But there's some glee at the end of the night when Dad chooses not to have supper with the cast and go home and have supper with her. Oh, that's lovely. Was there an issue with religion? Were they, was it important for your mum that your dad was on the right side uh, religiously? Yeah, I, I don't think mum and dad ever articulated that with me. But in recent times, through the pandemic, I started a family podcast, for a better, want of a better term. I've been interviewing various members of my family and putting their stories down on record. And as part of that, I've interviewed mum's surviving siblings. Um, she was only one of three. In fact, the other two are still alive. And they talk about their father as being very judgmental in that respect. That um, And when dad came along, that not only was he Catholic, but they went to the same Catholic school, Parade Christian Brothers. Yeah, and I had not realised that it was as laid on as that. And then I, I think in later years, her parents softened and certainly my mum and dad's attitude was very much not that. They were devoted Catholics rather than devout but very accepting of all types and very accepting of our decisions to not continue with the folly of wasting an hour every Sunday. How religious was your mum's childhood? Very much, it seems. And again, most of this I've kind of gleaned from the diary rather than her telling us. She was regularly at sessions. Uh, I think it was the third Sunday of the month. I became intrigued, just the line, Children of Mary would be written and often no description. So I kind of went down the rabbit hole of who the children of Mary were. And I've never heard of them. Who are they? Well, it's a youth movement, largely female. If you go into the finer details, men were kind of involved. Well, of course, they were in the patriarchal nature of the Catholic Church, but every photo of a group of children of Mary has always got the priest sitting in the middle. My understanding of it is that they, in Australia, kind of became the place that young girls could show their devotion because they couldn't be altar serves, they couldn't be altar boys in those days. It was all about the boys. So they would meet on a Sunday and do, I don't know, sing hymns, and but they would all sit together in church. And it was very ritualistic, as is the want of Catholic Church. They'd all wear blue cloaks. Well, they could become an aspirant in their late primary years. And before that, they were called the angels of God and wore red cloaks. So it was the blueprint for uh, Handmaid's Tale. Right. So, so you went from being, as a small girl, from being an angel of God in a red cloak yeah. to being a child of Mary in a blue cloak. And, and what happened once you progressed through adolescence and you got engaged or something? Well, you realistically, you were a child of Mary until you married. Um, and in fact, and I discovered this, that both my aunt and my mother went through this ritual. When they got married, they walked down the aisle wearing the blue cloak over their wedding dress. And then as they got to the altar, the children of Mary would swarm out of their seats and remove the cloak and they could never put it back on again. Wow. Yeah, wow. So all, and Mum never mentioned this. And I, and I got to ask my aunt, who's delightfully candid and quite erudite for 89 years, is she'd become the pre- president of the children of Mary. And that seemed to be the thing with... Mum, she always ended up being the head of whatever she did. I said, what did you do? And she said, you know, Damien, I don't think we did anything. We were useless. <laughs> so, 
She was she was scratching her brain. She said, "No." I said, "Did you did you go and help people?" <laughs> no. We just. It's a way of stopping them hanging around boys, I suppose. That was part I of it. I suppose so. Yeah. yeah. Or even maybe give them a taste of convent life, perhaps, if they would want to take that up down the track. <laughs> How about them? Was there, was there anyone in the priesthood in this large Catholic family? Yeah, John, her brother, who was much younger, he came along. He was the gift the family always wanted. The sport young boy and he went on to join the priesthood and I recently interviewed John as well and he he left the priesthood. He got into Catholic family welfare as a career choice within the priesthood and then went and studied in the United States at Fordham University in New York and in the process kind of came out and married and now has a, a new wife, lives a very happy life over there. But he said it was almost a given, all the, all the familial pressures that someone in the family joins. Was it a bit like Saturday Night Fever, you know, when Tony Monero's older brother quits the priesthood and there's great tension in the family? How did he break the news to the family that he was he was uh, <laughs> stepping back from this golden ticket to heaven, though, Damien? <laughs> well, he sent us a tape because he was in the States and he was on his own and it was a di- difficult period when Pope Paul VI had just passed away and then the first John Paul lasted, I think it was 33 days, so the Vatican was in a state of flux and so his dispensation basically sat on the Pope's desk because they were yet to be personally released by the Pope for the priesthood. So his papers sat on the desk for two years. So he was caught in limbo and he sent us a cassette tape basically talking through his decision. And I can remember, and I must have been, you know, 10 or something, sitting around the table. It was something we'd never done before, sit around with a cassette player and listened to him pour out his heart. And he was a very emotional or emotive man and didn't have his family to talk it through. And th- I do remember there being consternation about, you know, how they were going to tell his mother because she had a fainting fit when she found out. I think she took it better than anyone expected. But So it's, yeah, it was a pretty extraordinary thing. That, and the tapes seemed to go forever. So I was... I remember I started looking at the clock after about 10 minutes. <laughs> well, this poor anguished man is pouring his heart yeah, out. Yeah, right, you're leaving the priesthood. It didn't seem to be, you know, whatever. <laughs> How about your childhood in Watsonia, Damien? What do you remember of that, growing up in that area? Um, it was an interesting place to grow up, Watsonia. It's a, an army barracks suburb. One half of the suburbs bordered by the Simpson barracks. And then there was a massive scar through the middle of Watsonia as I grew up because uh, land had been put aside for a bypass, the Greensboro bypass, and it took 30 years to get around to building it. So there was just this row of quite <laughs> ugly paddocks running running through it with power pylons. And there were great paddocks for playing cricket and football. And well, But the ball would ping off one of the pylons pretty regularly, I suppose, though, wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. We, look, we lost a couple uh, retrieving the ball, but we were kind of adjacent to a chasm where the railway line ran through. So we were regularly losing players and balls. Right. <laughs> so it was an interesting place, Watsonia, because it's that, that area of Melbourne, you know, we're surrounded by Montmorency, Eltham, Greensboro, much leafier suburbs. And Watsonia was very much the straggly, ugly goat of, <laughs> of suburbs in the area. But it was a happy childhood. I was, Dad got a war service loan and they'd just returned to Melbourne after... Dad's teaching stint in the country, which lasted about 12 years. So I felt very much um, a bit out of the loop. My sister and I, she's only a couple years older than me. The others are all growing up in the country and there's a lot of country stories and we're always going back to meet and stay with those people 
and I often find with my, my comedy very much tends to draw on regional stories. Um, the merge of my f- play and film about country football club. I wrote a play about called the Lost Ball One Dory again. It was kind of regional regional stories, and people often assume that's where I'm from. So I have a kind of deep connection to it, even though I'm at heart a suburban boy. It's interesting your dad became a school a teacher, then a school principal, which is often one of those jobs where you want to present this this stone wall of authority, I suppose, to the world. The, the fact that through that your dad kept up acting. What, what kind of work was he doing? What was he like as an actor? So your dad tells me when I became full-time, he, he, he was incredibly supportive and I remember him saying to me, look, I'm really glad you've made this push. He said, you're a lot more talented than I ever was. I... He came close in his university days because he was doing Melbourne Union reviews and was starting theatre companies, but I don't think he ever thought it would seriously be the thing he would do. But it wasn't until he retired that he got really back into it. He, he would direct the school plays and musicals. Even when he was principal at McLeod High, he still took on that responsibility. But, yeah, he really embraced it when he retired. He had a real presence, but in comedy, as he was quite hammy, really played up to the crowd and... He was playing the poet Cove in The Sentimental Bloke. I remember him saying to me, I'm, I'm quite glad to have the prop of the Bible because I can write my lines <laughs> inside, inside the book because I'm, I'm struggling. I'm struggling to remember them these days and particularly Sentimental Bloke being in verse once you get out of the meter. You can't just start flabbing. So once he retired, how hard was it for him to let go of that school principal persona he'd had. Well, the diaries would suggest very hard. These memoirs are very much written like a school principal, written in kind of point form and with unnecessary elaboration (laughs) on minor details. Yeah, at times it's halfway between a principal's log and a police report, this kind of like forensic detail in the work done by the man who came and cleaned the leaves out of the spouting and... (laughs) It puts the price and dinner parties, uh, you know, every meal is listed with the wine the company, which was his great interest. He was, wine became his kind of main hobby in retirement. Right, so his diaries were brisk and businesslike. Uh, tell me about the weekly meetings he'd still schedule. Yes, so he, he foisted on mum a weekly Monday staff meeting in which they'd plan their week. <laughs> uh, and mum was a very obliging Staff person. meeting. Staff, he called it a staff meeting. He called um, it a staff meeting? This isn't your phrase, this is his phrase? This is his phrase, yeah, yeah. It became a rule for our family as we'd discuss. Yeah. Oh, it's Tuesday, they'll have already talked about it at the staff meeting. You know, so. so how would they begin? Well, you sit down with your mum and, and, and go, well, I'd like to thank you all for coming, <laughs> like that. Well, I've just written a scene in the show which satirises their staff meetings. And it's very much like that. As he as he takes the role, and it's just mum, so, <laughs> and he goes through the agenda. And mum mum's already ahead of the game. Everything in the agenda she's already taken care right. of. <laughs> right. So she's humouring so, him, in other words. Yes, right. absolutely. And that was yeah, that was very much mum. She would have she would have just blinked when he said we're going to have staff meetings, knowing that they were just for him because he liked to have his life planned and he remained that way to the end. A man of action. That's, that's <laughs> a man it. of action. They're quite hilarious. There's occasionally he write the minutes in, in the diary. <laughs> oh, no, no, that can't be true. Did that, he get minutes of the staff meetings with well, your he just, it, 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 Essentially they were like Monday staff meeting and they'd just be like the dot points of what was decided. Next time Jack and Dorothy come over for dinner, we'll play bridge beforehand. Because... <laughs> uh, 
we, we tend to be we tend to underbid after dinner because we've had a couple of wines. And he, he needed a meeting for this. <laughs> he needed a meeting. Yeah. Oh, that's lovely. Oh dear. It also had this the way he wrote the diaries. There seems to be no separation of import between things. So, for instance. The day that um, the Gulf War blew up on, you know, the first television war, he writes about that and then immediately under it in, in more detail he talks about the recurrence of an ingrown toe infection with their parish priest, Father Kears. <laughs> right. Saddam Hussein invades Kuwait, stud missiles fly into <laughs> Israel. Bloody toe infection? <laughs> Father Kears readmitted to hospital with toe infection. <laughs> and sometimes he'd write something like, Went to Haiti's hot bread kitchen, bought six rolls and a baguette. Pauline died of cancer. Watched the Golden Girls and had nectarines and ice cream for dessert. Who's yeah. Pauline? Pauline Toner was, was, he was friends with. She was a Victorian parliamentarian. And he just records her death like just, that. Yeah, just quite perfunctorily. Just In the context of reading more of the diary, you might hear the prelude to it. And quite sadly, there's one beautiful passage. I think I've learnt... But from both their diaries, really, just how genuinely altruistic they were and how they led their lives. What do you think this says about us as men, do you think, Damien? I mean, clearly your, your father was a man of enormous feeling and, yeah. and love, a lot of love in your dad, that he can, right, went to the bakery, Pauline's dead of cancer, went and patted the cat for a while. Yeah. Oh, what do you think about all that, the way, the way men can do that sort of thing? Or maybe it was men of his generation who, yeah, who lived through all possibly. of Yeah, possibly. I mean, I don't think he would, didn't emote. It's just the nature of diaries a little bit. Because he's, he'd be recording all this stuff at the end of the day, he just puts all the information down. He doesn't need to impress himself, I suppose, does he? He knows what he thinks and feels about it. No, it's not written for anyone else. There's a period where he's tending to a close friend who's slowly passing from cancer and there's a lot of circumstances in his friend Barry's life that make it complex. He's got young teenage children and his mother needs to go to a nursing home and Dad was facilitating all this, taking him to his chemo sessions, taking him to visit nursing homes to make sure his mother was arranged for it. And it's incredibly sad. And Dad goes through quite a lot of detail and then I felt like I was living his grief when I got to when he passed away. I was overseas at the time and didn't live that moment with him and I knew how fond he was of Barry. Then, yeah, he wrote about doing the eulogy and that it was one of the most difficult things he'd ever had to, had to do. And then he literally did just then, you know, full stop. We watched Twin Peaks. It's an unusual show. <laughs> it certainly is. <laughs> right. <laughs> but of course, like, like you say, he's he's not writing this for it to be read and certainly not to be talked about on national radio no. like like you and I are doing right <laughs> no, now. No, indeed. Nonetheless, yeah. it's it's still kind of yeah. delightful, isn't it? This very loving man. And it's an interesting log of you know, as both the diaries are of the the times they lived in. You know, in, in researching diaries for the show, I discovered the diaries of Nella Last, who was an English woman who wrote diaries from 1937 to 1966, and it's thought to be one of the longest diaries in the English language. 12 million words she popped out, and it was actually part of a thing called mass observation that was begun by anthropologists in England in the 1930s um, who decided to record the everyday experience. And they got 500 people, most of which just responded via survey. So, for instance, when Edward VIII abdicated, they sent out a survey to all of them and got their responses, but Nella wrote every single word. And that's what this feels like. It feels like 
a chronicle of those times. And, and I'm glad that he mentions the TV stuff. The, the, the slow burn of they, when they realise they're going to abandon watching Twin Peaks is just delightful. <laughs> the problem with writing a diary, though, in real time, as it unfolds in real time, is by the time you get to the end of reading it, you're dead, aren't you? I mean, that's yes. the thing. It's like, having a, it's like having a full-scale roadmap. You know, by the time you point yeah. to where you want to go, you're there, aren't you? <laughs> it's a bit like that. It's true. True. <laughs> you mentioned you were living overseas for a while. How does he... He must have missed you, Damien. Did he write about that? Yeah, it's really fascinating hearing it from the other perspective and the worries. So in 1991, I lived in Japan for six months and then travelled for the rest of that six months. And, uh, and also the complications. It was 1991, so I was constantly harassing them, you know, to bank money orders because I was, you know, getting paid in, in yen and having it transferred and, and all those complications. But, yeah, the, you can hear the, the joy when, you know, it's great, like just in the middle of a sentence, he'll just say, Damien rang from Berlin. <laughs> so, yeah, you can sense a little bit of trepidation before I went away and the worry and, yeah, that's quite lovely. And it also shows how connected they were to all their family. I can't, I can't believe how often we spoke to each other, to be honest. You mentioned Twin Peaks there. How much of TV turns up in his diary, Damien? Uh, pretty much any day they're at home, he'll recount what they watched. Um, we watched we watched the Cosby show followed by Hill Street Blues. If only they'd followed him earlier. <laughs> also, it's the time of videotaping and Dad, Mum and Dad clearly had the first uh, recorder because people are constantly ringing them. Can, my nephew rang to get this one great exchange. David Cullinan rang to get us to tape Spaceballs. We watched it. It was quite enjoyable. This is like Barry Humphreys, isn't it? Like we, thor- <laughs> we thoroughly enjoyed ourselves. Thoroughly, yes. And Dad very much writes like that. And he always reviews them, um, Melbourne Theatre Company. We saw the cherry orchard. The set was spectacular. We didn't much care for the play. Maybe we just don't like Chekhov. <laughs> Fair enough, too. (laughs) Podcast. Broadcast. This is Conversations with Richard Feidler. Hear more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app. Or go to abc.net.au slash conversations. When your dad writes in his retirement diaries about your mum, Kathleen, how does he refer to her? How does he talk about her? There's no romantic... um wording in it, but there's a clear devotion and care. I've just finished reading a, a passage from when I was overseas and Mum got quite ill. And I remember I rang on grand final day, AFL grand final day to get the scores and I was in Burgundy in France. <laughs> and I was a bit pissed, to be honest. Well, I you just, were in Burgundy, Damien. Indeed, I had an excuse. And you know, Dad being a great wine lover, I wanted to talk to him about Marsha Vant, the um, you know, underground wine caves I'd just been through. And Dad uh, revealed that Mum was quite ill. At that point, they didn't know what it was and she'd been in and out of hospital. And uh, and I do recall sitting on this stone wall after the conversation and kind of sobbing um, when you're away and you're not connected to, directly connected, those things. And, and they didn't know what was wrong with her as well. 
But I remember then reading the diary leading up to that day and the worry and care of my father's writing as they kind of go through this together um, showed the depth of his love. Why do you think they got on so enormously well together, your mum and dad? I mean, insofar as a kid can know, perceive the real mechanics of their parents' marriage, sometimes, I mean, when you're a kid, you can see it up close, but you miss, I think, about yeah. 90% of it or at least half of it or something. I don't know. But what do you make of it anyway, Damien? I know that it never seemed to me that they ever ebbed away from that being besotted with each other. It's the, just the way they looked at each other and they, and I can remember as a kid watching them on, a, on the dance floor, they would always dance together if a band started up and I can, I can remember standing on the table at the Manhattan Hotel in Ringwood just to get so I could see them dance and then got into trouble for sitting on the table. But they kind of would... Well, yeah, it was the Manhattan Club in Ringwood, wasn't it? I mean, the Manhattan Club in Ringwood, you don't go standing on tables in, that, in a fancy joint like that. No, no, unless there's a stripper in the front bar. Um, <laughs> they're the only ones who are allowed to stand on the tables. But uh, but what was it like to stand on the table and see them dance? Oh, uh, look, I don't know. It's a, I just remember it really clearly because I just wanted to keep watching them and they'd kind of danced around the floor and they kind of went out of sight and... Um, they just always, yeah, they just always enjoyed each other's company and and even through the diaries, you know, if they're not doing anything on a Saturday night, mum will cook a dinner party just for the two of them and they, they look forward to that as much as going out with friends. They just always seem to be that spark and not just devotion to each other. It, it didn't turn into just a habitual partnership. There was always a... A romantic love that stayed to the end, which is was just beautiful to witness. It sounds like their retirement years were among their happiest together. Yes, absolutely. So, you know, it's been churlish when I said the least interesting part, but they, they did have a really good time. They were, you know, as I said, being quite altruistic and doing things for other people, but also, you know, going on holidays and they had a couple of overseas trips and, yeah, they, they lived they lived a good life. How did they go when they moved into a retirement village or assisted living, as we might call it these days? Dad struggled. Mum couldn't have been happier. Uh, it was at a point where Dad really struggled with the kind of selling house and finding house, and I can remember him. He suffered from depression a few times in his life, and that was one of them. He he became... It's the first time I kind of heard him talk like this, and it worried me. He's, he said, oh, I haven't been able to provide a home for your mother, which just seemed like a ridiculous thing to say, but the, the pride in him, you know, that he'd worked all these years and he'd sold his home, he didn't have one to move into, it just, yeah, it really hit him. And he was losing his, not losing his faculty so much, but just losing his self-confidence. And um, my elder sister in particular kind of rallied and, Mum was all for moving into a retirement village, but Dad wasn't. And um, eventually they spoke to enough people who were living in this particular one not far from them, and um, when they moved in, he just completely changed. He just he just loved it. And, uh, and Mum was, you know, I'm, I'm leaving here in a box. This is it. We love it. <laughs> and, and did they have, like, big do's? Did you go to any of the do's they had there, Damien? <laughs> they, had, they had happy hour, um, and, which was 
like watching Cocoon, to be honest. That would have been a bit untidy, I would have thought. Yeah, people getting up and telling vastly inappropriate, politically incorrect jokes. They were, they were young and hale enough when they first moved in there to, to be able to enjoy all that stuff. And it was, yeah, and they had people from their parish lived not only in the retirement village but within their street. So, yeah, it felt to me like, why didn't we do this earlier? There was the issue of your dad's driving. He lost his licence. He did, yeah. So he um, was actually on the night of Mum's 80th birthday. He had organised for a... Um, Dad, as I mentioned, is very much into wine and had great friends in the wine world. And uh, one of those is uh, Pat Carmody, the winemaker at Craigley Estate in Sunbury, Victoria. And he'd brought some antique wines up for Dad to have at Mum's dinner and they were taking it to the restaurant where we were going to be. But it wasn't licensed. The restaurant were very kindly going to allow Dad to have, well, this is very my father. He said he didn't want to walk him with the wine, so he drove them up there in the afternoon. But after he'd had a bit of a taste with Pat, we believe he fell asleep at the wheel and ran into a lamppost. I do remember at the, at the 80th, the airbag had gone off, so Dad had airbag rash on his face. <laughs> this great photos of him holding up vintage Craigley Shiraz with... With uh, airbag rash. With airbag rash. <laughs> so he'd lost his licence and was not driving... He got it back. He got what they called a restricted licence back and I believe that allowed him to drive within three kilometres of five kilometres of home. But he, as far as we knew, he kind of almost completely stopped driving and they got taxis. Mum drove a little bit, um, you know, to a hair appointment and things like that, but, um, but sparingly. Can you tell me what happened then, Damien, on the night of, of the accident? So, again, it's very much Dad and very much their relationship. Mum and Dad were having, were going out to dinner with my sister and they were watching the cricket and Australia were in a one-day game and my, my nephew was at the game. And so they, they realised as Australia began to fail in the game that it would finish early and that would mean my sister had to go and pick up him from the MCG. So... They rang my sister and said, look, we'll drive because you'll be in a, you'll need to get away. And she protested and they insisted. And the restaurant was literally just in their local shopping centre, so it was, it was quite close. Anyway, we don't know exactly what happened, but Dad had um, got in the car and he, they were panicking because they just... It was just so beautifully them. They just always worried about other people. But they just wanted to make sure they got there early so that, you know, they could get away. And Dad couldn't, was rushed, and he couldn't get the passenger door open, so Mum sat in the back seat. And then he couldn't get the car to move. And this had apparently happened a few times before, and Mum would always say, all right, I'll come around and see what you're doing wrong. So she got out of the car and walked. And all Dad says is he remembers seeing her pass, her vision pass through the revision mirror and he thought, I need to make sure that the car's safe. And the next thing he knew, the car had backed 50 or 60 metres and he backed into the unit across the road and um, Mum had been hit in the process. The police believe the open car door had 
collected her on the way. And how did you hear about what had happened? Well, I was um, I was at home, but my brother-in-law then started ringing other members of the family as mum was being rushed to hospital. And so he rang my brother in Townsville, who then rang me. And Paul is um, he's economic with words. And and often in those situations, it's hard to read emotion in his voice, perhaps because there's an absence of it. Um, that's not true, but it, I think some people cope in different ways. But um, <laughs> he passed the news on to me quite simplistically by saying, not good news, Dad's backed over Mum. And I recall, you know, obviously at the time, I was devastated, but I remember after a few days having a... As you, as you tend to do, you get away from your family and I was talking to my friend Mickey D, fellow comedian, and I told him how Paul told me and I could finally laugh at it, um, even though that, that was the day I found out, you know, the doctor had said to us it was a non-survivable brain injury, but we then started speculating what the comedy festival show would be called, whether it be, whether it be not good news or just dad's back over mum or... <laughs> All the variations, the the kind of conversations that comedians have with one another, but I certainly needed at that point just the the black comedy uh, coming out, helping with the catharsis, as I was literally dealing with, you know, some family members not accepting the situation as quickly as others. And uh, my immediate family were great. It was was just more kind of peripheral family members who hadn't been inside the story. So... um, so, yeah, so mum was in a coma for five days. Uh, what did you see your dad do as as he had to watch her, uh, her life ebbing away? It was interesting. He, We were all kind of maintaining a vigil in there and, you know, he's out, he was 83, so we weren't expecting that. But it, he kind of became a bit peripheral in the scheme of things as we worked through it. But also we were all... In, so, as often happened when we told the story, people just became immediately worried for him and about him. But he remained quite stoic through it. And I remember quite early in the week him saying, your mother would hate it if I had lost the plot as well and that this tragedy would lead to you losing both of us. Did he talk to her? He did, yeah. Um, there was one point where he spoke, and this is where their faith <laughs> came came into, I suppose, it performed a great function for him. And he he spoke to his priest and the priest said, look, why don't you apologise to her? It's an accident, but... And I was there when he did that. And it's one of the most incredible acts of love I've ever witnessed as he stood over her and, you know, the tears were dropping under her cheeks and, and he apologised. And it was it was a it was a beautiful thing to witness this this proud stoic man completely submitting to the occasion and and he he, he wasn't there when she, I was I was with Mum when she passed away with my partner Joe at the time we were the only ones who were physically there so it was a very different experience for me by the time I saw him straight afterwards she'd already gone and he was in a, he was in quite a different place. And he diarised kind of the, the details, bare details again, 
but occasionally he would uh, say something quite he was quite emotional. He said him kissing kissing her goodbye after she'd passed away. It was quite devastating to read that. Um, he wrote in quite a lot of detail about it, the rosary. And seeing all family from all around the world who'd come to be, you know, in Australia to be there, and and then he finished by saying, "Went home and watched the Allen Border Medal." Because <laughs> uh, you wouldn't want to miss anything from the diary from the events of today, would no, you? No, no. He wrote three days later, I think it was, and it it seemed almost pointed. He wrote it in the middle of the diary. He just wrote one sentence, started to plan life beyond Kathleen, which was gut-wrenching, but also, you know, it was like he was putting a line line through it. Not not forgetting her, but, you know. Drawing a line under their life together. Yeah, yeah. It's an acceptance. You delivered this wonderful eulogy for your mum. Do you remember what you said about her? Are you able to talk about the kind of things you were able to say about her? It was an interesting eulogy. I mean, doing a eulogy for anyone you love is, is difficult, but under the circumstances of Mum's unusual and tragic death, it attracted quite a large crowd, as tragic events tend to. People come out and support. And I, I remember seeing, you know, I had 40 or 50 friends from the entertainment world come, many of whom I hadn't met Mum. And I remembered thinking... The tragic death can often hijack the person's life, so I was quite conscious of telling her story and explaining who she was. So I, I dealt with it comedically. There was great pathos in it as well, but I wanted people to go away with the sense of, you know, in hindsight, you know, the the joy of the 19-year-old Kathleen as much as the, the woman who'd sadly met her end in such awful circumstances. Um, and I still think it's it's the proudest I've ever been of a public speaking moment for that reason, that it, it felt like it achieved that. How were you, Dad's last years without her, Damien? Initially, he, you know, he, he really rallied, but he was declining, you know. There was slow, it was slow dementia with Dad and by... The last few years he'd started to not really recall what had happened and he kept asking after her, you know, have you heard from your mum? I heard you had an accident and kind of fishing for information. So it became tricky because we could no longer reminisce about it because it would just bring him back to that. There were moments of great lucidity and I used to find myself, if I was on my own with him, I could get him to a place where we could discuss you know, literature and plays and Dad was a great reader and as as was Mum. Mum's a prolific reader, but Dad used to read to me as a kid. And so I started reading to him and reading the things that he'd read me. And that was, it was interesting. It was also, it's a great, interesting exercise because there were moments where you know, I'd be reading him Corn Rigs and Barley Rigs by Robbie Burns and all of a sudden he would just come in and on memory the, the words would come back to him. This is a man who couldn't find his way back to his bedroom. How did you find out he'd died? I was... He, 
took ill quite suddenly and got rushed to hospital and it was a couple of kind of traumatic days where we had to kind of make some calls. And I remember being on the phone with my sister who was with the doctor saying, deciding whether there was going to be intrusive um, procedures to find out what was wrong with him and we all agreed that that shouldn't be the case. And um, then it was the decision was to get him back to his nursing home. And so I don't think... I don't think any of us expected it to happen as fast as it did. I certainly didn't. But there was some urgency to get there to see him settled back at the nursing home. And I was driving there and it was pouring rain on Friday night. I was driving through Templestowe. I was stuck in Pico traffic. And so I was only about two kilometres away and my phone rang in the car. I was on speakerphone and my, my same brother Paul rang and he said, where are you? And I went, oh, in Temple stay stuck in traffic and he said, don't hurry. Using the same economy of language. Um, but I could hear the tremor in his voice and knew he'd passed away. To write a show about their life together, you must know a whole lot of things about them now that you didn't know before. Just by the time you've been spending with them, funnily enough, through their diaries, do you, do you see them... Uh, more clearly or differently now, Damien? It's more, it's more of a confirmation of them, Richard, that they lived lived really full lives and were very devoted friends and and parents and siblings. They were they just didn't, they just didn't take any shortcuts. I think is the thing I've noticed that there was never a even though they lived for themselves as well. They they had holidays and they went out to dinner, but they were constantly there for other people. And I think that's the lesson I've learned. And it's there in the 19-year-old diary and it's there in the retirement diary, which is extraordinary that, you know, the commitment that mum was showing as a, as a teenager, essentially, out reading and playing cards with disabled soldiers and volunteering at St Vincent's and... But I think that's the, the lesson I've learned that they just, yeah, no shortcuts. Damien, it's an amazing story. Thank you very much for sharing it. My pleasure, Richard. Thanks for helping tell it. I spoke with Damien Callanan last year. Damien's show, based on his mum's diary from 1946, is called Double Feature. And Damien is currently touring the show in regional New South Wales and then he's taking it on to Brisbane, Darwin and regional Victoria. You can find the details on the Conversations website. I'm Richard Feidler. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Richard Feidler. For more Conversations interviews, please go to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. like conversations about big stuff, it doesn't get much bigger than parenting. I'm Maggie Dent, author, parenting educator and the queen of common sense parenting. You may have heard me on conversations before, a few times, but did you know I have an ABC podcast? Actually, it's an award-winning podcast. It's called Parental As Anything. We tackle those big parenting problems straight on, the big ones and the small ones, while giving lots of practical tips and common sense solutions along the way. So 
If you have tweens, teens, grandchildren or little ones of your own, let me help you be the parent you really want to be. Well, at least some of the time. Find Parental as Anything in the ABC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts.